Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in the Gospels. This is Gospels part 71. Last week we saw where a lawyer came to Jesus and asked him what to do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus did the rabbinic asking him back, like, well, what do the scriptures say? And (laughs) the guy answered correctly about loving God with everything and loving your neighbor as yourself, and then the guy kind of wasn't satisfied with the the Jesus's like confirmation of that answer by saying like, but who is my neighbor? Kind of hinting at these cultural biases that Jewish context in the first century had with being neighborly to your fellow Jewish brethren, but then those on the outside maybe treating them differently. And Jesus gets at the heart of that by addressing not who to be a neighbor to, but how can I be neighborly to all who yeah. are connected to my life. Um, and then he throws it even more on its head by introducing the Samaritan as a character into the story, which <laughs> listeners, including the lawyer, would have probably totally not expected. So right. that's kind of a shocking aspect of that story. Then we m- went from there to the story of um, Martha and Mary. Jesus and his disciples were visiting at Martha's house and how Mary was acting like a disciple sitting at Jesus' feet, wanting to receive the teaching, the words that he was saying. But Martha was very caught up and distressed about her sister not helping her showcase this Jewish uh, hospitality that's so common within their culture. And um, right. Jesus kind of gently rebuking her and saying, like, you know, don't miss out on the chance to receive wisdom and teaching from the master while he's here. Yeah, that was uh you know it's funny you you're the way you were telling the story reminded me when I was a kid watching Saturday morning cartoons and every every new cartoon was like a complete change of context and every <laughs> it sounded like fun. Great review. <laughs> All right, so and then we you remember we ended off with the stuff about uh they were supposed to be going to the the festival of booths. Mm-hmm. And we talked about well what was Sukkot all about? What what did they do there? All that. Well, uh, we're going to pick up there, and it actually, uh, you know what, drama. <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> we're we're going to be in the book of John, I think, for quite some time. But at least right here at the beginning, I think we can make some some fairly quick progress. So let's see what we got. John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Ouch, right? Mm -hmm. I mean... I get it. It's probably harder to convince family than anybody, but still, that, that's that's pretty rough. So we see, uh, we're seeing a little family tension. Jesus's brothers, and just for review, Sammy wouldn't happen to remember any of their names, would you? Uh, no, James is one. There you go. Uh, yeah, that's about all I got. 
And another one that supposedly is in the New Testament uh, writing, Jude. Okay. Okay. And then there was also a Joseph and a Simon. Not There's no test. We don't have to remember that. It's not super important. I'm just saying. A little review. But anyway, those were the brothers we know of, and they do not believe that he is this Messiah. So, and this is what's funny, very brother-like, though, they start taunting him. Hey, bro, you got all your little followers down in Judea. They haven't seen any of your miracles yet. You better get up there and show them your stuff. You can't just hide out doing your little tricks around here. You got to go do them at the big show. Let the whole world see what you've got. Sadly, and probably, I mean, to them, I'm sure, unknowingly, but we can look at this and we can go, you know what? I mean, I get it. They're brothers. And if you've ever had brothers, you know what this is like. But I think that they are basically taking on the same role that Satan did after Jesus's 40 days in the desert. He came back for the temptations. This is very similar in in personality, in form, to the part where Satan says, hey, why don't you throw yourself down? Mm. Angels will watch over. So, Anyway, the point is, so we got we know that we've got the Festival of Booths coming up. We know that Jesus and his family, as far as we can tell from Scripture, they seem to be regular attendees to all these festivals, and his brothers are now, you know, teasing, hey, hey, you better get up there and show them all your fancy miracles, you know? So this is all part of the setup. John has, he's totally switched ideas, you know, in what we've labeled as chapter 7 here. And uh, we're going to see what happens. Mel Paul, I'm 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 so sorry. I'm going to add some molasses do to it. our steam train right now. Oh, do um, it! How? Let me back up just a minute. Uh, does the Greek imply at all that his brothers are taunting him? Because I know, like, on a face value of verses three and four, you could potentially read that and think, well, maybe his brothers are getting at how Jesus, like does miracles and then tells people not to tell others or leaves almost immediately as the miracle is done and maybe his brothers are trying to spur him on to like be the messiah that they thought that he was going to be or is verse five like our hinting that the language is more derogatory than it is supportive yeah well verse five is definitely a big part of that and i don't know that it is uh I don't know that it would be any more apparent in the Greek than in our English. I mean, obviously, you can read different English translations and you'll get a different flavor. So, you know, it could be for sure. But even verse four, I mean, if you look at verse three and it says, hey, go and do your stuff. Well, if that's all you had, you could just as easily determine that to be, you know, positive as a negative or anything. It's just, hey, go do your stuff. But it's that, hey, nobody works in secret when he's trying to be known openly, right? I mean, you, if if you're really doing these things, you need to show yourself to the world. I think, I think there's just a, and I don't know. I mean, this would be really good for people to offer, you know, other ways of reading that. But to me, uh, the the words of the brothers taken in totality, not just the first part, and then especially verse five saying you know what, they don't even believe in him. So if somebody doesn't believe in you and they're telling you, hey, you need to go show off your stuff, what kind of attitude is that? Yeah. 
So, yeah, I, I don't know that we'd get much more from the Greek unless you read something. No, I think you're re- reminding me of what is in verse four helped a lot too. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know what? I grew up with brothers. <laughs> I'm sure that helps. I could be totally wrong because I'm reading from my colored glasses, <laughs> but that's the way I see it. <laughs> but they get down and there's another few verses here. Let's see where they go. Uh, John chapter seven, verses six through nine says this. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Okay, so here we are. We're we're calling it six ish six ish months out from his death, and he's like, "Yeah, I ain't going. It's too dangerous up there, right?" So the brothers they've just finished teasing him uh, that he's supposed to go, you know, make himself known to the world. Which I mean, they're just saying go to Jerusalem. That was like the center of the world for them. And Jesus responds by saying, "It isn't time." for him. And it's important. He says, my time has not yet come. And then he says, but their time is always here, meaning they can always and at any time go do it. They've got timing doesn't matter for them. There's no big story hanging around them, at least right now, right? And I mean, in some sense, I guess we could push it and say, you know what? They're just ordinary humans. They're in this world, they're of this world, whatever. So any public display of themselves is of no real consequence. Does I mean, what does it mean? Who's even going to know them, right? There, there, there's nothing going on in their lives. But again, Jesus says, my time, is not yet, my time has not yet come. And then you're going to see in here, we've got something to do with this idea of public and private. So that's going to come up. But the, the, another thing is the world accepts them without any real consequences because in many ways they're just like the world. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't good Jews. They m- might even have been, you know, what uh, some of the other people in Scripture were termed as righteous because of their, their faithfulness and loyalty, the Torah and stuff like that. Maybe they were. I think that's especially, okay, we know his brother James. He actually became known as James the Righteous. (laughs) So there was something about him. But the point is, compared to Jesus, there's nothing uncomfortable about them. They fit in in the world. They didn't didn't make other people uncomfortable. But Jesus tells them, you know what? It's different for me. His very life now brings conviction to all who meet him. And I think in some sense, they had to feel that. When Jesus said that his life, you know, brings conviction to all around him, I bet there was a part of his brothers hearing him say that who inside, if they were being honest, were going, yeah, whatever, I feel it. Back off, bro. (laughs) Or get all the way up off my back, as they say. And he knew 
Jesus knew that there were those who were seeking his life. So he had reasons for not going and, and reasons that they could go, all that kind of stuff. But Jesus tells them, look, you guys just go ahead. Just go on up to Jerusalem. I'm not going. And he adds, and this is important, he adds that the reason he isn't going is that his time has not yet fully come. The first time he said, my time has not yet come. The second time he says, my time has not yet fully come. And so, I don't know, kind of a wrinkle there. Jesus could be talking about the same thing, and it's just that this is the way it came out in John's gospel and doesn't mean anything. Or it could be that there's a reason that it's stated two different ways. Jesus seems to be talking about something different in one of those times. And I would say the second time, if if we're going to try to guess, the second time he would be talking about something to do with, you know, the time, like the Passover, his death, all of that. So his time has not yet fully come for going up to Jerusalem. So he's not going to go up because he doesn't want to risk ending up on the cross too soon. That's, I, that's a way to look at that. Now, again, it, it could be that there's nothing special about adding the word fully in, but I think he's, he's hinting at that, that his, his first reason was, hey, it's not my time. And then to make it clearer, you know what? I, I'm not going to go up there and risk ending up on the cross. But John, and and again, very interesting. You'll see when we get to the next section, John lets us know that Jesus does, in fact, remain in the Galilee. Now, there's more that we could say right here, but we're not gonna, because as we read, it's gonna bring all this out, and I don't want to ruin it. So, what about you, Samuel? Anything before we go? Yeah, I guess I just want to give just a little bit of space for me to ask why would Jesus be concerned about him going to the cross too soon? Like, I, I definitely know in the past we've talked about this dynamic nature with Jesus and the things that are happening all around him in the public and how he needs to be strategic, but I don't know if we've actually directly addressed, like, what would have been the implications if he had gone to the cross too soon? Because if his pur- if his purpose was to die for humanity, the world— what would it matter if it was like earlier rather than later? Yeah, and that's a great question because, I mean, on one hand, we're dealing with what ifs and my goodness, uh, the possibilities are endless. Who knows what that means? But you know what I thought of? I don't know if this is necessarily the right answer to your question, but I'll tell you what popped in my head. I want you to go back to Genesis because I know it's a, it's a favorite of yours. What is a thing that was very, very important to God down around day four, I think it was, something like that? Um, not humanity. I thought humanity was like day six. That's right. So that ain't it. Oh, was it the, was it the, uh, the appointed times? Like the, look at you, the stars in the sky set for appointed times. Yes. Appointed times. And so we see from the very, very beginning that God has this affinity for appointed times and appointed places. And so all I can say is, you know what? Somewhere in this, God had made up his mind when this was going to happen and where it was going to happen and whatever. And Jesus is like, you know what? I ain't screwing that up. If that's when and where God wants it, that's when it's going to happen. But... It's, it's so cool that you asked this question, because as we keep reading, 
that question is going to become even more relevant. So we'll keep going. You'll see this, this, is, this is interesting and good. In fact, we may as well just go. John chapter 7, verse 10 says this. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. <laughs> well, now, wait a minute. Jesus got the FOMO. He's missing out. Yeah. And I mean, you, I, I think it's fair. I think it's fair for some people to look at this and go, wait a second. Did Jesus just tell a fib? I mean, he just told his brothers that he was not going to go. And then he went. And the reason that I say it's a very fair question is because the plethora of answers that people have to that very question (laughs) is astounding. I've picked a handful of them here. I don't know if there will be your favorites or not, but you'll get an idea of what people are thinking. So there are explanations aplenty, and we're going to look at a few. Ready, Samuel? Oh, yeah. So when Jesus said, my time has not yet fully come, Remember how I sort of presented that as if he was looking forward to the cross? Well, this explanation says, well, maybe he didn't mean the cross. Maybe he just meant that his time to go to this feast had not yet fully come. You want me to go today and my time won't be till tomorrow, (laughs) right? And so, you know what? What are you going to, how do you say anything? It's like, okay, maybe, maybe, because I don't know. Here's another one. Jesus changed his mind. Now, on one hand, it's a very, very simple idea. It's not a crazy idea. I mean, he was human after all, and other people would argue, but he's God. God never changes. Well, I hear you, but I don't think that's quite what that particular sentence is trying to convey. But nonetheless, he was human, and maybe he, he all by himself, he just changed his mind. Or another way to look at that is, Maybe the, the, the Holy Spirit actually changed Jesus's mind for him, said, hey, I know you said you weren't going, but psh, I think you need to go. Or you could go even further and say, maybe the Spirit at one moment actually said, here's the deal, don't go. And then later, that same Spirit came back and was like, all right, now go. <laughs> I mean... You got to admit, it's totally plausible. Who are we to say that didn't happen, right? Uh, here's another one. Uh, the explanation says, we have seen Jesus teach on priority many times. Uh, that's something we know, because we've talked about that a lot. And it, just as an example, we know that lying is bad. So if we're questioning whether Jesus told a fib or not, you go, oh, well, that would be bad. But could we say that, well, it would be considered okay to lie if you were going to save a life. And all you got to do is think about people helping the Jews in World War II. I don't think God was bothered at any one of them for telling a lie when he saved a life. So, so there's that. So maybe Jesus, he knew that his own life was in danger unless he did things, you know, just the right way or, or whatnot. And so maybe keeping it from his brothers was just a necessary thing. And, and it was literally a matter of life and death, his very own. So, I don't know. Take it or leave it. I'm just saying these are ones I found. Here's another one. Believe it or not, there are a number of texts, and I don't mean like English translations, but underlying manuscripts. There are a number of them where it actually is written, I am not yet 
going up to this feast. Now, the problem is, we also have a bunch of manuscripts that definitely do not have the word yet in them, and given the whole, scholars, uh, generally speaking, tend to lean toward, you know what, it seems like the most accurate one is the one without the word yet. However, we do have some manuscripts like that, and I mean, to be sure, if it had the word yet in there, that would totally be removing all of the controversy that we have over whether he was lying or not lying or whatever. So, I don't know. Does it really belong there? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, and then, uh, just one more. When Jesus said he was not going up, what he meant to say was that he, he would not be going up in the manner that his brothers suggested, right? His brothers wanted him to go up with I don't know, call it some flair. They wanted it to be very public. There's that word. They wanted him to be very public, make himself known, a public display. And Jesus needed to avoid going up with the normal crowds, caravans, etc., because it wasn't time for his triumphal entry or, you know, any of that kind of stuff that was going to come at Passover. So Jesus, in some sense, he needed to go privately or to sneak or whatever you want to call it in order to avoid all of that. And so when you see the end of verse 10, when it says he also went up, not publicly, but in private, mm. you know, they're they're looking at that and saying, you know what, that actually bolsters our our explanation for why Jesus did this, which, you know... I mean, all of these, I picked them because I, some may sound silly, some may not, but all of them sound like, well, I mean, who are we to say that's not true? I mean, they have at least some some plausibility to them. I can't really answer the question. Obviously, you probably have listened to the podcast long enough now, you know that I usually save my favorite for the last. <laughs> want that to be the last one that sticks in your head, but I have... I have no real reason to believe it's any better than the others, other than that's the one that makes sense to me. That's really it. Uh, so anyway, he does that, and, you know, those are some possible explanations. Any of these could be right. There could be things we haven't considered, or maybe I considered them and decided not to bring them to the podcast or whatever. But in the end, here's what we do know. The original question was, wait a second, did Jesus tell a fib? Okay, in the end, we know that he was resurrected. And his resurrection proves that he was perfectly righteous. Therefore, as far as fib-telling goes, we know that there is an explanation. We just may not know exactly what it is. Does that seem fair? Oh, yeah. We gotta trust Jesus' decisions through navigating all this sticky stuff. Yeah, but isn't that weird? I'm not going. And he remained. And now I'm going. <laughs> it's just messed up. I don't, I don't get it. In the best possible way. Yes, yes, for sure. All right, let's keep going. Chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, 
He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Okay. So you see how John he's he's kind of setting up this whole thing and it's it's going to get a lot harder for us to work through the text but now we're just sort of setting the stage if you will. But now John tells us that the Jews were looking for Jesus. And again, we're in John, so what does he mean by the Jews? And in this case, I'm suggesting, you know what? This is probably most likely the religious leaders in and around Judea, Jerusalem. Would you, would you say, real quick, would you say that's probably more like the Sadducees of the Jewish leadership than it would be the Pharisees? Actually, I think it would be a, a good mix. I think the Sadducees are involved. I think the Herodians are involved. I think that some of the Pharisees are involved. And, and we're going to see, as we read through the text, it's going to focus on the Pharisees. So it could be that it was just them, but I would bet that it's kind of a, it's kind of a mix of all of them. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so John also tells us that Jesus was, you know, pretty much the talk of the town. Everybody was already murmuring, talking, complaining, whatever you want to say. And, and he did have his proponents, those who were on his side. And they were willing even to call him a good man. That's probably giving you flashbacks to last night, huh, Samuel? But (laughs) they were willing to call him a good man, but others, they actually thought this guy was trouble. And their reasoning was that he was leading the people astray. Now, Samuel, what does that mean? Leading the people astray. What do you think that meant in their minds? Um doing things that were contrary to what the Torah and the law were saying. Yeah, and in fact, encouraging others to do that. So anything that that would draw people away from Torah instead of to Torah, leading people astray. And so, uh, and, and I don't know if you remember when we talk about what does it mean to be a prophet, what does it mean to be Messiah, all that stuff, for what it's worth— this would have been a clear sign that he was not the Messiah, you know, if it were true. In fact, uh, he would have qualified as a false prophet in that, in that sense, and the, the penalty was death. And you could go read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, if you want. So their, their reason for not liking Jesus, supporting Jesus, following Jesus— was a really big, fat, important one, if, if it were true. And so it was kind of a big deal. But what's funny is, you know, Jesus, people are looking for him, that the leadership is, some of the regular people are, and that was another thing. Notice it says the Jews were looking for him, and then it says they were muttering about him among the people. John seems to be distinguishing between the regular Jewish people, Israelites, as the people, and the leadership as the Jews. So that's kind of interesting. But even though he's saying all this, he then follows with that, you know what? People had to be careful. They had to keep their talk about Jesus quiet because nobody wanted the Jewish leadership to know that they were talking about him. And, and because they thought that would get them in trouble, they might accidentally get caught up, uh, get in trouble with the leadership. And This is yet another great example of John using that phrase, the Jews, in a special way, because look at that sentence. 
He's talking about the people. They're saying he's a good man. No, he's leading people astray. And then it says, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Well, think of how weird that would be if what John meant by the phrase the Jews, if he meant the Jewish people. You'd have a bunch of Jewish people thinking to themselves, hey, I'm afraid of the Jewish people, so I'm going to not speak openly. It's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. What is that? So the Jews are that leadership. So anyway, that's an important picture. Uh, yeah, well, I think that's it for that part. You got anything, Samuel? Yeah, um, at the beginning, whenever I asked about contextually which part of the Jewish leadership could this be, um, hmm. the reason I brought it up is because our Western minds want to quickly grab on to, well, it was the, the Pharisees are the enemy. Um, they're the ones that are right. in total antithesis opposition to Jesus, and that isn't necessarily the case. And right. in these verses, 11 through 13, n- nothing in the text says that whoever these Jewish leaders were, that they were looking to kill him, were they? Because, I mean, are, are, I mean, I think the language might imply that, but could it also be like the Pharisees wanting to like address him, like find him and address him privately? It's like, Jesus, all this is about to go to a head if you don't like do something to change course. Like, for goodness sakes, like most of us are on your side. Like, please change because we know some details that might like result in like you dying. Yeah, and see, the thing is, I think that you probably did have some portion of the Pharisees who were thinking like what you were just talking about, and then you had some who were, I mean, they were just dead dead set against him. And I don't know if you remember, I'm not going to be able to pull uh, scripture references out of my head right at this moment, but we talked about uh, the ones, uh, they had some who were questioning, and they immediately went off to scheme with the Herodians to try to kill him, stuff like that. See, the thing is, and we've seen this before, Jesus seems to have some some clue as to what's going on in people's minds, even when they haven't really shared it yet. So he definitely knows, and and we've seen it in a couple other portions of text, but I don't, uh, it's going to have to come to a head as we continue on. But yeah, we don't see it here yet. In fact, in 11 through 13, The only thing we know about the Jewish leadership is that they were looking for him, wondering where he was. Mm -hmm. Everything else was about the people. So, yeah, I don't know. We good? Yeah, I think I I cheated a little bit and and scrolled down your page, and I think this next section might actually answer my questions. It just might. (laughs) But let's see what happens. Yeah. Uh, This is now John chapter 7, verses 14 through 20. So now, all right, now we're getting into some stuff. So here we go. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, 
He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon! Who is seeking to kill you? Okay, now that's just weird. Because uh, there's so uh, there's a number of things. We got the Jews, and then we got a crowd, and we got... Uh, let's figure out what's going on here. So you remember, he was supposed to go up to the festival. He wasn't going to go. He didn't go. But then he did go. And now all of a sudden, we're like halfway through the festival. We're in the middle of the week. The, the festival of booze, I don't know if you remember, it's about a week long. There is an extra day, but we'll talk about that another time. So midway through, Jesus shows up at the temple teaching. Now, just historically, we know that this was probably sometime in the afternoon. That was when they all gathered to do this kind of thing. But Samuel, we we got all this drama about if he should go or was going to go or what, when he should go, whether he's going privately or publicly, all that. The Jews seeking to kill him or or you know, we've said that that was a thing. Jesus was aware. And now he's just going up into the temple, teaching in the temple right in front of everybody, actually talking with the guys, possibly the guys who actually want him dead. So it's it's as if there's this line between life and certain death, and and Jesus is walking that line. I mean, almost like, you know, you ever see the, the guy on the high wire? Mm-hmm. Jesus is walking that line. He, you know, almost going to get himself in trouble, but not. Timing is essential. I'm only going to go when it's the perfect time. You know, all this thing. And I don't know if we're thinking about the high wire, he's probably doing a couple flips up there. You know what I'm saying? Doing all the tricks because he's in control. And by the way, ironically, Sukkot is a very festive kind of festival. So doing tricks on a high wire would have fit in. I'm just saying. <laughs> But, I mean, here he is, he's in the middle of the temple, and now in this case, he's teaching, but it probably makes you think back, I bet. Remember when he was 12, and he went and he went to the temple, they had to go back and find him, he was with the guys, he was asking questions, answering some questions, stuff like that. He likes being in that temple. So, anyway, the Jews, and in this case, again, I think... We could probably guess that it's the leadership, but it's it's one of those opportunities when we could say, well, I don't know, maybe John was just referring to everybody that was there, all the Israelites. Can't be certain, certain. It's just a lot less clear here. Could have been either one or both, but whoever it was that made up this crowd, they were shocked that he could teach so well because he wasn't known to have studied under any teacher. Now, to be fair, just so we get the right idea, he would have definitely been involved in, like, memorizing scripture like every other Jewish boy. And this would have been a full seven years or eight years of, you know, pretty good study. He just just didn't 
uh, end up going to uh, uh, a rabbi. He didn't, he didn't become a disciple of a rabbi at age 13, as far as anyone knows. And so, given the rigors of discipleship in that day and time, and, and what their training was like, and having Jesus show up and kind of pretty much putting them all to shame, it, that would have been truly amazing to see. So when it says the Jews therefore marveled, I mean, that is a completely reasonable response. It's what they should have done. And if anyone's feeling underwhelmed, like, uh, there's nothing really in Jesus's words here that makes it seem so marvelous in what he's saying, like crazy wisdom, but that the text doesn't include... Like we should right. keep in mind that there is teaching that was involved that John did not write in his account. So just keep that in mind. Some things were yeah. left out before Jesus like addresses um, what they're thinking about his teaching. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows all of the stuff that we have missed out on. But yeah, it must have been some really great stuff. It had them all marveling. But Jesus informs them, it clarifies for them, that he indeed had no earthly master or teacher. But he did have a teacher. It was God himself. And now, I would say, and, and I, I, I don't know, I, I think that Jesus was pretty amazing before his baptism and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit fully in him, resting fully on him without measure. I think he's pretty awesome. But I got to believe that some of the stuff that's coming out of his mouth and the things that he's able to do and all of that, I think it would, it, we have to look at the Holy Spirit in him. I think that's an important picture to hold on to. And so uh, this is happening, I would say mostly, at least partially, through the Holy Spirit. And his teacher, according to Jesus, is the one who sent him. And, of course, we know, looking back, that that was God. Whether they're really picking up on that or accepting that or whatever while he's talking, that's a different story. But God wants him to share, you know, whatever it is that Jesus is laying down. Now, up to that point, he hadn't really said anything controversial or bad or anything, so everything, you know, it's all good. All good up to this point. But then, as they used to say when I was a kid, Jesus goes for the jugular. <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah. He states, and, and, and this is good, because, I mean, these, these are words that we need to hear and not overlook. He states that anyone who is truly faithful and loyal to God and God's will which can only mean that he actually does God's will instead of his own will, at least more often than not. It's that person who knows and recognizes that his teaching is God's teaching and that he's teaching it on God's authority and not his own. So that, I think that is such a beautiful image. If you don't look at it as law and a burden and all that kind of stuff. You just understand the the awesome wonderfulness that is in the Torah, and you take it on because of all that he's done for you. One of the benefits of that is actually being able to see more clearly who God is, who Jesus is, 
how this all works. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But uh, according to Jesus, the proof is in the fact that he is not seeking his own glory, but he is seeking God's. And so, for those that have the eyes to see, it's clear that Jesus is being true. He's being true to God, and he's being true as in like God, the only one who is truly true. (laughs) There is no falsehood in him, him, Jesus, or God. And see, they, they would have the eyes to see if only they truly practiced what they preached. And what I mean by that is they were really good at keeping the law, but they didn't really understand the point of the law, and therefore it was, it was not, they, they didn't bring justice and mercy and all of those things. They just, they were just keeping rules. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't working. And would you say that the reason that you started off this point by saying that Jesus goes for the jugular is that he's getting at the heart of if these people who were asking this question about Jesus's teaching and what authority it comes from, if they were truly, genuinely following God within his instruction and knowing what the heart of God is, then it in some sense, it shouldn't have mattered to them where Jesus got the teaching because the content itself should have been in agreement with what they already knew about God and his will already. Yeah, yeah, because they were, they were sort of stuck on the, who was his teacher? What school did he come from? That kind of thing, when what they should have been just simply recognizing, oh my goodness, Whatever he's speaking, these are the words of God. We know it. Mm-hmm. We know it because we know it, and we recognize it, right? But they weren't. So yeah, that's exactly it, Samuel. So Jesus reminds them uh, that Moses gave them the law, and and you know that's again Torah, and and this is important because Moses also is a great example of the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him. Moses was supposedly the most humble man, uh, none, none as humble as him, uh, before or after. That's, uh, I can't remember which book that's in. But anyway, so Moses was the same way, and they, they claimed to put their faith in Moses and what he had done. But of course, we have that idea that uh, Moses, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus is the, the Moses that was to come, the prophet that was to come. And so uh, he should have been recognizable to them. But anyway, the, the law, and we've said this before, it's, it's always better to think of it as instructions as opposed to rules. Uh, it contained God's will. And that was the very thing that they needed to be doing, and as we've said, with understanding. And if they had, that would have made him recognizable to them. But they don't keep it in that way. They're, they're, they're focused on just the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. So more specifically, they don't keep the true essence of the law. They're good at keeping the letter. They didn't seek mercy, justice, charity, etc. Which, that is the actual goal of the law, the actual end of the law, as Paul calls it. Jesus offers 
his final proof, and this is the part where it gets kind of crazy, why do you seek to kill me? And what's interesting is, in a way, we could say that they've killed Torah. Right, the, the, the thing that is supposed to bring life and light and salt to all of the nations, and yet, as, 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 as good as they were at keeping the letter of it, it wasn't bringing life to anybody anywhere, and so in a sense, they were killing it, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. But here they are. It's like they're having this shocking memory lapse. Right, they're denying that they are seeking to kill him. And now, just so you know, uh, when it says he has a demon, if we were gonna if we were gonna put that in modern English, we would say something more like "You're crazy, man." Mm-hmm. So I, I I don't think that that we should take that ultra literally and think that they were indeed saying that he had a demon, although. They could, because as the story continues, <laughs> they're going to say some rough stuff. But whatever. They're, they're saying, look, you're just crazy. Who is seeking to kill you? But what's important about that is that was the crowd that said it. So is the crowd just a bunch of the Jewish leadership? Or is it more? And, and, and why is there confusion? Or, you know, I don't know. It's a very interesting moment. Maybe, maybe somebody's having a moment of realization, right? Moses gave them the law, thou shalt not murder. And then, you know, they're recognizing, oh, yeah, uh, we actually were trying to kill him. (laughs) Now, of course, they don't think he's innocent. They think they have a reason, I guess. But maybe they were having a, you know, what today we would call a come to Jesus moment, (laughs) Uh, you know, realizing, oh, yeah. We're not supposed to murder, and here we are trying to plot this guy's murder. But, again, it mentions a crowd. Uh, maybe Jesus is speaking to ordinary Judeans or, you know, some mix or whatever. We just uh, It's just hard. John kind of gets a little confused here. It's hard to follow who's, who's really who. But there's no reason that it couldn't just be a bunch of religious leaders. Uh, there's that, too. Uh, the whole topic of seeking to kill him, I guess, in some sense, would make you think that, that, that there were a lot of religious leaders there, but you still can't tell who's responding and why, whatever. So, I don't know. Just kind of got to make what you can out of that, because it, as far as I'm concerned, that part is, it's just a little bit vague. So, we can't be too clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that was coming to mind for me when you were going through this part about the connection to Moses and the law was, it's amazing how much fear and anxiety can twist someone's like maybe their original intent was good but it turned it the, the fear and the anxiety can turn it into something destructive and what i mean by that is that yeah. so much of the jewish people's following the letter of the law was probably fueled by this fear of oh man we don't want to experience exile again like just before this period of time as a nation, they returned back to their promised land from being in exile. And they knew that, you know, according to God's system of blessings and cursings, the way that you avoid exile is by being obedient. And so that 
is what probably is driving their strict adherence to what the letter of the commandments is saying. And Jesus is, you know, again, trying to address that by saying, like, you're missing the point. Like, your your fear is getting in the way of what the law is meant to do. Um, Yeah. And right now you're, you're expressing the exact opposite of it. Yeah, yeah, it's good, Samuel. I I think you're right on, right on. And, you know, to be fair, we're sitting here talking about who is seeking to kill you, like, you know, they're denying it, whatever. Jesus is going to help them remember how this all came about. So we may as well show them that part, too. As John chapter 7, verses 21 to 24 says this, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So, when they were acting like they didn't know what he's talking about or denying that they wanted to kill him, he took him back to the very thing that had sent them over the edge. He had healed. <laughs> Hold on a second. Let's, let's say this. Jesus knows that they're a bunch of lying liars. We got that. And he brings up the the thing. He says, I did one work. Now, we know he's done all kinds of works all over the place. So what exactly is he talking about here? Well, he hasn't done a lot in Jerusalem. And so in this context, if we're trying to go back into the scripture and find, he's talking about the one work that he did in their midst that they felt was a violation of Torah, something that was worthy of death. He had healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. Remember, he'd been laying there like 38 years or something like that? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was on the Sabbath. And so he says that they were all astonished at this work. They marveled. They were uh, carried away by it, which is a cool translation, by the way. And uh, see, here's the thing. Many in this day agreed with the idea that some things could supersede the Sabbath regulations. Some, some, the, the temple service itself, that was an easy one. We read about that in Matthew 12. Circumcision is the example that Jesus uses here. Saving a life, we've told you about that one before. There were a number of things. But Jesus was using this same reasoning, except that he was pushing it further. He was basically letting them know that healing was okay to break Sabbath regs, even if a life was not in danger. And so now that he's brought it up, he explains how and why they're not seeing it correctly. And he's using circumcision, as I mentioned, as his example. It's a really big deal to them. It came from Moses, he says, and and technically we know that it goes all the way back to Abraham. But Jesus is connecting back to the law. 
and and the law is connected with Moses, and so, you know, you see why he says that. In fact, circumcision, it's so important that they will perform a circumcision on the Sabbath if the eighth day of a baby's life falls on the Sabbath. So, he's he's showing them that, look, you have already learned to prioritize within Torah. You're prioritizing the positive commandment to circumcise over the negative commandment to do no work. And and here's the, here's the cool thing. There's probably a little part of this sen- this uh section that didn't make a lot of sense to you. Some considered circumcision to be a correcting of the flesh. Circumcision was an improvement in the eyes of some of Judaism in this day. Now, whether or not they were accurate or correct in their statement isn't, we don't, nobody cares about that. The point is the attitude behind it. They considered circumcision to be a correcting of the flesh or an improvement. And so look what Jesus says. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So he's referring to how they thought, oh, look, he's making, you know, private parts better or well or improved, corrected. And Jesus is going, why is that okay? I'm, I'm fixing the whole body. Shouldn't that just be better? So it's, a, it's an awesome argument, and, you know, he's always finding different ways to help them see how they're not seeing Sabbath properly. But anyway, Jesus is highlighting their goofiness. He's showing them that he's doing the, exactly, the exact same thing that they are. He's prioritizing within Torah, correcting or improving the flesh, but in his case, the whole body, not one part, if they consider the first one, not just okay, but actually good, well, then they should, if they're being consistent, consider what Jesus is doing, not just okay, but great, like Tony the Tiger, great. (laughs) And Jesus is saying, or he's not saying that healing on the Sabbath isn't a legitimate violation. And this is so important to see. Jesus isn't saying no, that's not a violation. What he's saying is, dude, I'm with you. It's a violation. But priorities, healing, uh, getting rid of suffering, alleviating suffering, it's just more important. It's the higher priority, even though it's a technical violation. And that's, it's important to see, important to see. I guess the final bit, Jesus adds that they, they need to look beyond the surface, you know, like the, the face of whatever's going on. And in this specific circumstance and others, when they're reading their Torah, they, they need to try to see what God is actually communicating, not just a list of rules. They're being shallow. Jesus has encouraged them, encouraging them to peer deeply into Torah. See the true essence, what's going on. It's not rules, it's loving instructions. Instructions about justice, and mercy, and charity. It's the very image of God. And they have to see clearly to judge righteously, 
which is the last thing he said. Don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. Samuel, why don't you read Deuteronomy 16, 18 so we can see what he's talking about. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Yeah. And Jesus, he's showing them that you're judging, but it's not really righteous judgment. You're, you're, You're looking at the face of the thing, and you're not looking into it to understand God's view of this thing. You were commanded to do righteous judgment, and you're falling down on the job. Anyway, that's that little bit. That's so good. I mean, the whole time you were saying all this stuff, I'm like, I feel like I'm in the background with Jesus' words, like egging him on or like cheering him on because everything that he said is just, I'm in total agreement with. And it also was really refreshing your last point because I almost feel like Jesus' words there at the end is kind of a reminder to you and me about our heart behind doing this podcast like we want people who choose to listen to us dig into the text to look beyond the surface and we don't we don't want your walk and that your understanding of the scriptures to be shallow like we want you to peer deeply into the torah and find its true essence like that's what okie dokie mos is about so yeah um yeah that's a that is a good sign off for this week's episode for sure It is, and I'm not going to ruin it. Let's say we're done. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.